if you have your Bible, I'll encourage you to open them, however you choose to open them, whether that's electronically or by a book. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you and open that to 1 Timothy. We've been in this series now for quite a while and we're on the, uh, we've reached the midway point. We're on our way towards the end. Um, and we've been in Titus, 1 Timothy, and some of 2 Timothy. And uh, really, these are called the pastoral epistles. Pastors are leaders. Uh, epistles is just a fancy word for a letter. And so this is Paul writing to a few leaders, a few pastors, Titus and Timothy, uh, to help encourage them uh, to, to lead and to show them how to lead and what's important in leading. And we've been looking at a lot of different ways. But today I want us to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I know it says we're going to go through four or five, but I decided that there was so much here, I didn't want to rush through it. And so this is going to be part one, and next week will be part two. Can I get an amen for God's intervening? Yes. All right. All righty. So if you have your Bibles, turn to First Timothy chapter three. We're going to begin at verse one. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, now that's a, that's a pastor or an elder, Desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, uh, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife. He must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And our response is, thanks be to God. Well, as I said, this is, this is really going to be part one, but the theme of both today's message and next week's message will be focused on the reality that Paul is trying to communicate in all of this, and that is that Christian leaders, now remember, we're all called to lead in some way, and if you are a believer in Christ, you are a Christian leader. And so 
Christian leaders keep the main thing the main thing. Now, we're going to look at this today, and I, I hope this will make a lot of sense by the time we finish. But we're going to find out in a lot of these things what the main thing is. And that's where we want to focus. Now, it starts off with this just huge behavior list. So I just I put a bunch of them up there without, you know, these these people, these leaders, the elders or the deacons are to be uh, without wrongdoing, faithful to spouse, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, good with their family, respectable, not a newbie. That's my translation. You can't get saved one day and be a pastor the next. Uh, there's some training that needs to go into that. Good reputation with outsiders. Oh, I wish more of our pastors. This is the one that I want God to work on my heart more than any. Is that, is that I would be good. I would have a good reputation with those who aren't a part of the church. That they would see and know and see something of God in my life what I say and what I believe and what I hold to. Let's move on. Sincere, not pursuing dishonest gain, deep faith, clear conscience, not malicious talkers, trustworthy in all things. So why are there all of these listings? Why does Paul want to go through this behavior list? Some of you have probably already checked out because you think, oh, this is just a, a do, do this, don't do that kind of, kind of sermon. But hang in here with me. I think there are some reasons why Paul lists all these qualifications for leaders. Uh, One is this is really the most pastoral part of the letter. He does call out elders. He does call out deacons. Those in the Church of the Nazarene, we have two tracks for ordination. You can be an elder, which means you feel called to lead and to regular preaching of the Word. Or there is a deacon where you are called you feel called to serve the church in some behind the scenes roles you may preach on occasion but it's not your driving passion and so we ordain in both of these so Paul lists these out as pastoral things pastoral qualifications do's and don'ts for people who will fill those positions in other words what Paul is saying by these great lists are these people should have a good head on their shoulders They should have a good heart that's directing that good head. And they should be good servants in the community. Not just the church, but also in the community. I also will draw your attention to the fact that women are included as leaders, not as a separate category. Some of your translations will have a little thing out to the side that will say, when he specifically calls out women, that he's calling them out in their leadership roles as deacons and servants. If you want more on that, I will direct you to our podcast from last week. Go ahead and listen to that and, uh, and then come back and talk with me. Then the second reason Paul might have had all of these things out there is that he wants them to know how people are to conduct themselves in God's household. That's verse 15. Uh, you know, he wants to come to you, but if I'm delayed, I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Verse 15. In other words, the behaviors of the leaders, all those do's and don'ts, those things that, those qualifications that those pastoral leaders should have are to model for people how people are to conduct themselves. It's not creating a separate category where, oh, 
pastors and, and elders, elders and deacons, they're way up here. And they have to have all those qualifications. And the rest of us don't have to do a thing. Just show up to church and sit in a pew on Sunday. No, what Paul is getting at is saying all these qualifications, all these things that I am saying that these elders, these pastors should do are to model the behavior that we're all invited into. These qualifications are for all of us. These things are, are the things that we are to model in our lives. Let's move on, because there's a third reason. I think Paul also wants them to remember that God's household is more than just a house. Now, I know we gather in a building set aside specifically for the worship of God, but in Paul's day and age, in this little tiny church in Ephesus, they more than likely met in a home. And six days a week, someone lived there. It was probably someone who was a little more well-to-do. They had a house, and so they had all this. But when they gathered as the church... There is something different. It's not just Bob's house. It's God's household. When those people come together for that kind of purpose, it is God's household. And he says that this household is the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Let's take just a second to unpack that. Because church, we think of this building. Some of you might remember the little kid thing. You know, I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together to try and get us away from thinking of church as a building, but as a group of people who gather to uh, worship the living God. Paul would say that they are the church when they gather. No matter whose home it is, no matter what building you gather in or no building, when you gather together, you are the church. And the church, that word church, is the Greek word ekklesia. Let's say that together. I know you've been dying for a Greek word. Ready? One, two, three. Ekklesia. Ekklesia specifically means the ones called out. That doesn't mean you had bad behavior and somebody called you out. It's more like thinking about Paul Revere riding, uh, you know, out of Boston and riding through the countryside saying the British are coming. He's calling them out. He's calling out those who are going to rise to the occasion in that moment. That is a calling out. But this is not a calling to a nation or calling to a military. This is a call of the living God to human beings just like you and me. We are called out to see something different modeled in our lives, which is modeled by our leaders, yes, but that should move its way down into your life, into your life, into your life, as we seek to live the way the living God has called us out to live. The church is not a building. I want to just pause here and let you know whether this is your first Sunday or you've been here for a long time. You today are a part of this ecclesia. You may think you came because somebody nagged you or somebody invited you or just because you got to go through the motions and somebody will call you because they recognize that you weren't here. Whatever reason you think you're here for, I want you to know that in all honesty you are here because the living God called you out and longs for you to be a part of this church this body of believers who is trying to model what God looks like out into our world, from the leaders all the way down into the pews. This is important work. 
The living God, I want to also make this qualification. The living God is the pillar and foundation of truth, not the church. Can I just say that? But the church is to model the living God to the world around them. It is kind of this thing. I think we get into a lot of trouble and much damage is done when the church thinks that the church is the pillar and foundation of the living God or of the truth. We are called to to model the living God who is the foundation and the pillar of truth. But we are not the source. Can I say that? Is that okay? I think a lot of damage has been done when we've gotten this backwards. Let's move on. Because four, I think Paul wants us to know, wanted that church in Ephesus and wanted Timothy to model and understand why godliness is important. He mentions this word over and over and over. It's the Greek word eusebia. Godliness. And we've been talking about it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about godliness is not self-righteousness, but godliness is exhibiting the behaviors of Jesus in our everyday lives, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our lives. We model what Jesus looked like out into the world. And Paul wants us to understand why this is important. Now, I want to let you know and, and give you a hint. This is not about behavior modification. Okay? This is not about control or just about being good people. It's much, much deeper than that. I am very much indebted to Dr. Steve Green, who is the chair of the theology department at Southern Nazarene University. I'm actually very indebted to the Green family. His younger brother, Tim, was, was my Old Testament professor at Trevecca and my chaplain all through the years that I was there. And really, uh, Dr. Green, God used in so many ways to encourage me and really light a fire under me about the importance of using all of my mind to love God. But one of the things that he taught me, and I've, I've shared this with you before, but it's been a long time and probably half of you weren't there and the other half doesn't remember. And so I'm just going to say it again. He, he helped me understand that behavior is often a good indicator. It's not the sole indicator, but it's a good indicator of what we really, deeply, and truly believe. Let that sink in for a second. Behavior is often a good indicator of what we really, deeply, and truly believe. Because we can think a lot of things, and we can say a lot of things, and use a lot of words to say them. But our actions, what does the old saying say? Your actions speak what? Louder than your words. That's just a nice way of saying that your actions Your behavior is often a good indicator of what you really, deeply, and truly believe. Now, he would say that our behavior flows from what we value. Now, I remember hearing this, and and this was just such an eye-opener for me as a young 20-something who had had heard a lot of messages about behavior and about doing the right thing and, and, and all of these kinds of things. And sometimes those were connected to what I value, but sometimes it just seemed like there was a list of things that we weren't supposed to do. I'm just old enough to remember people getting upset if you had playing cards in your home. But I had no idea why playing cards were so bad. Because I, we played Rook until 2 o'clock in the morning. Anybody played Rook before? You know this game? 
It's called Nazarene poker. Uh, it's kind of a version of, uh, uh, what's that game you guys play around here all the time? Euchre. Yeah, it's kind of like Euchre. But somehow, if the cards had that little spade or club or a heart king, they were evil. But Rook was fine. It's because it wasn't connected to the value, the, what we valued. And Paul, uh, or, or Dr. Green, was trying to help us understand that in this, our behavior really flows out of our values. Now, in somewhere along the line, we did start talking about values. That if you value your family, there's certain behaviors that will just flow naturally out of that as far as being a dad or being a mom or being a kid, if that's really what you truly value. But even values is not deep enough. Because our values flow from our identity, from who we see ourselves to be. I love this story. This is just uh, an example of this. This is, uh, you know, uh, in the last two years, I guess, um, we were still living at the parsonage. And often after dinner, we would take a walk around the property and maybe wander in the woods with Jackson. And we were driving over and it, or we were walking around and it was... It was uh, probably in the 6 o'clock to 6.30 range. And we were walking by and we see Deidre's car still here, just right outside. She doesn't know I'm going to talk about this. But anyways, so it's still there. And I, I thought out loud, I said, I wonder what Deidre's, why Deidre's still at the church. And Jackson, quick as a wink, pops up and goes, that's Deidre. That's just what she does. That's just who she is. You see, Deidre, if you've ever talked to her, she believes her identity. She says, I'm here to help churches. I love churches and I'm here to help churches. And therefore, she values the church and what she does for the church. And her behavior shows that sometimes she puts in extra time and effort. Next month, it's been two years since we got Deidre. Isn't that awesome? I'm excited. That's just a good thing. And I appreciate what she does and that that is part of who she sees herself to be. And that flows in her values and her behavior. How she lives that out among us. But then even that is not deep enough. Because your identity is directly shaped by your story. And this is really where I wanted to spend the heart of the message, is in this story. Because Paul then goes on to say, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. You're thinking like, man, he's going to just go on forever. No, it is literally three lines of a poem. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. That, from that, Paul says, from those little three lines, all godliness flows. This is the story. This is the God we serve. And it's going to shape your identity. And it's going to change your values. And it's going to see that behavior just flow in your lives. Not because you're just working yourself up into it. But because it flows out of you from this God. So at first glance, some of you might be thinking, Oh, great poetry. I hate poetry. And I'm not a great poet. And I'm not a great lover of poetry. I know what I like when I read it. But it did help me when I understood that poetry is a poet using words, familiar words and familiar themes, 
And then they change them in a way that shocks us into thinking differently or thinking or pausing to think about something a little bit. So hopefully that helps you. These, this poet, this poem that we're going to look at is really something to stop and make you think, to shock you into pausing for a moment and looking at those deeper things that Paul is getting at. The other word that throws us is that this is a mystery. Paul says this is a mystery. And we have really talked about mystery as something that's completely unknowable. Ah, it's just a mystery, right? Don't know how that works. It's a mystery. But when you see the word mystery in the Bible, what they're talking about really is something that is infinitely knowable. It is infinitely knowable. The best example I have of this is Scripture. Scripture is a mystery at how this continues to speak to people over and over and over again. I I chose this picture in particular because it shows someone who has read and at some point they were reading and something spoke to them and they underlined it in blue pen. They went through and they underlined. But then they came back around to it at some later point and there was something that spoke to them even deeper. And so they had to get a highlighter because they'd already underlined it in blue pen and now they wanted to remember this specific verse. And so they took the highlighter out and they put it there again. You've had this experience, haven't you? Sometimes you've read Scripture and you've thought, that made no sense whatsoever. And then life changes and you come back to it and you read it and that thing that made no sense whatsoever speaks so deeply to your circumstance in your life. That's mystery. That's infinitely knowable. And I am here to tell you today that so far I have been studying Scripture for about 30 years and it is still teaching me stuff today, in this moment. Things that I have read a hundred times still speak at a deeper level. This is the mystery that Paul is saying in this poem, which I know is a part of Scripture, but he's saying this poem, you could sit with this and you will see things change in your life. So let's look at this. Because he says this is where all godliness flows from. At first it just looks like a bunch of paradoxes. Flesh and spirit, angels and nations, World and glory. These things that just seem like at opposite ends of the spectrum, they're being pulled together in this poem. This is part of the poetry. Flesh, spirit. We're going to pull these together. How are we going to do that? Let's look. That first sentence. I wanted to write out the whole sentence because I think it, it just helps. Ephane rothe and sarki, edikaiothe and pneumatai. Because your scripture, your, your Bible, the way the NIV translated it said, He appeared in flesh and was vindicated by the Spirit. But honestly, when you look at the actual Greek, Ephanarothe means He was made visible. So the old word for that is manifest. It's not like He appeared, ta-da, here I am. It's that there was a purpose. He was made visible. There was someone who was bringing into visibility this one who had existed from all time. He was made visible. He was made manifest. There was purpose in it. And He was made visible in what? Flesh. He was made visible in flesh. And then, while in flesh, 
Edikaiothe, it means he was righteous. He was right related to God and to others. He was righteous in his spirit. Now I know that because you've had thousands of years of theology and being around the church and developed this thought, you don't understand how radical it is into Greek society that said flesh was bad and spirit was good that Paul would say, no, but he was made manifest in flesh. And he was righteous in spirit at the same time. Now it's important, I want you to see that en sarke, in flesh, en pneumatai, is in, not by. It just kind of shows a bias where we're saying, oh, but he was in the flesh, but he was made by the spirit, he was made righteous. No, in his flesh and in his spirit, he was righteous. He holds all of these things together. In other words, he was revealed in the flesh, was righteous, was right related in the spirit. There was a purpose in the flesh and spirit being connected unopposed. We still struggle with this today. How many of you have seen this picture before? Anybody? This is the picture of, you know, one of those models that they did from bones of a man from the first century in, uh, in modern day Israel, Palestine. I know we've seen the Scandinavian Jesus who walks around with blonde haired and blue eyed with his blue sash and his white robe. This is not actually Jesus, but this is probably closer to what Jesus looked like. And we still struggle with the fact that God was in flesh reconciling the world to Himself. If you don't believe me, think about this. Because it it still makes people uncomfortable. Jesus probably did not have a lot of access to bathing water. God stunk. They didn't have deodorant then. God knew what it was like to have a full bladder. And have to go find a place of privacy to empty that bladder. Or worse, that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) You see, we giggle and, and, and that's okay. It is kind of humorous. But it just shows that we're still not convinced fully that in your flesh you were created as the image of God. And that Jesus was really revealed was really made manifest. There was a purpose that God wanted you to see that in your bodies you are good. And that in your bodies, your spirit can be united with His spirit. And just like His spirit and body were united and righteous in right relationship with God and others, your body and spirit can be right related with God and right related with others. We've got to move on. The next paradox, angels and nations. He was seen by angels. Now we like to think your mind probably goes quickly to a few months from now when you know the angels saw the baby Jesus in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. But Paul is getting at angels. Where do angels appear in the Bible? Angels appear in the Bible around the heavenly throne room of God. When Isaiah has his vision, he sees the cherubim and the, he sees the angels flying around and singing and doing what they do. Angels show up in God's space. And he was heralded among the nations. The Greek word there is ethnicin. What does that sound like? Ethnic, right? Ethnicity. So what he's saying is that 
Jesus fills is Lord of all space from the throne room of heaven down to the places where even you think God's presence cannot be found. Jesus is Lord even there. From the highest high to the lowest low, Jesus fills all and is Lord of all. This is the living God who we are called out for. Angels are supposed to be the ones who are heralds. But when this poem begins to mess with your identity and your values and your behavior, you will realize that you were given the task to become the herald of God's kingdom to all the nations. Last one, world and glory. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Believed on is not just believed about. I memorized my creed and now I know what I believe. But it was trusted. He was trusted in the world. And the world is not just planet Earth. That word in Greek literally is cosmos. What does it sound like? Cosmos. He was believed on, yes, on the Earth, but in all creation, out to the farthest reaches of the Hubble spacecraft's ability to show us. He fills all that space. He was believed on and shown trustworthy. He was proved in all of creation. Do you get the sense that God is bigger than this building? But even that wasn't big enough to contain our Jesus. He was taken up into glory. Majesty, not just heaven, but it includes heaven. It includes God's space. So He was the one who was made manifest by the living God to come and hold flesh and spirit together in righteousness for all. He fills all from the highest of heavens all the way down to the lowest of lows. But He doesn't just stop there. He moves from the lowest of lows back to the highest of highs. He knows how to get there. He knows how to get you there. He knows you. And is calling you out. This is what we are called into. I've already said that. Because this changes everything, my friends. Because if this is our story, and this is our song, then it's going to shape our identities and our values, and yes, our behaviors, to move in line with this story of this incredible living God. So let's look at this as far as our 10-4 vision, because we've been talking about that a lot. And there are a lot of behaviors there, aren't there? We're called to give. We're called to, to invite. We're called to invite our, our We Care families. We're called to invite our neighbors. We're, you're called to give towards uh, going in mission. You're called to go. You're called to serve like we're going to serve at Buchanan Church here in a couple of weeks. You're, you're called to go. There's a lot of behavior there, isn't it? But I want you to know that we've been very intentional that those behaviors are connected to values. And what is the value? The value is others. Oh, sure, we're given to pay down a mortgage, but that's so we can invest money that's being wasted on, on a mortgage to go out and ministry to others. That's why we go to Croatia. That's why we go and serve is because we have a value of others. But our identity shapes that value because our identity, we believe that we are called to be disciples of Jesus. And you can only be a disciple of Jesus if you're actually making other disciples of Jesus, which requires what? Others, which requires what? Going and giving and serving. Do you see how this all works? 
but this works or this moves, this flows because He was made manifest. And He held flesh and spirit together. And He filled all of creation from the throne room of heaven to the lowest place and all the way back through. The highest highs, the deepest breaths, the widest widths. This is our living God. This is why we do the things we do. So I want you to know that the living God who holds all things together and fills all spaces with His love and grace and is Lord of all things, calls us, calls you to trust Him with everything, to receive Him into all of your life, to announce Him to everyone in your life by your living, which is godliness, and to worship Him at all times in all places. That's what it means to be called out. That's what it means to be ecclesia. The ecclesia of the living God. Your behavior, and I just, this, I want you to, I want you to receive this well, because I don't want you to go out of here feeling guilty. Guilty and shame doesn't do you much good. This is just an indicator. And if you think there's a difference between your behavior and this poem, then that's a good place to start praying. That's a good place to start inviting God. Jesus isn't interested in saying, oh, there's my story. Your behavior is much less. No, it's like, I want to invite you into the story. I want you to have a new identity. I was made manifest in flesh and spirit so that you could see your identity in terms of this story, in terms of this poem. And it will work its way. It will shape your values and shape how you live your life out. But I want you to know right now, your behavior matches up with your values, your identity, and your story. It just does. You can't get away from it. If you don't value your family, if your story doesn't say that other people that you've chosen to marry or be in relationship with are not important, that you're the sole center of the universe, I guarantee you that's going to work its way down all the way into how you choose to spend your time. So the question then remains, does your story need rewriting? I want you to know today that the God who was made manifest in flesh and held spirit and flesh together in righteousness, who fills all the way from the throne of heaven to the lowest low and all the way back up out into all creation and back into glory, invites you into this narrative, into this poem, into this story, for it to change and shape you. I'm afraid that somewhere along the, the way the Enlightenment won, and we think it's all because if I believe it in here, it ha- you know, that's all that's needed. So folks, I want you to take a moment. Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. As you look at your daily life, is there a difference in your identity and what you value? Does your behavior show there's, there's a difference between the God who gave everything for humanity and fills all things and is Lord of all things in all places? Does your, does your life model that out to others? 
If it doesn't, can I, can I gently, tenderly invite you into the rewriting of the narrative? Can I invite you into the poetry of Paul that says, you wrestle with this. That's going to mess with you for the good. Because you'll begin to see your flesh and your spirit in a different way. And you're going to see that there's no high place you can go where Jesus has not gone higher. And there's no low place in you or in all of creation where His love does not reach. That will cause you to look at the other ethnicities differently. That all of creation is God's and He fills it all. It might change how you care for creation. I hope this really messes with us today. It's the way... I think it's shaping who we are as a church and it needs to shape who you are as a follower of Christ. Have you taken that moment? Does your story need rewriting? If you would like for me to pray for you this week, because you've noticed there's something different between your life, your behavior, and this God of love. And you want your story rewritten. Would you just raise your hand right where you are, right here, all around? Yes, yes, yes. Good, good, yes. Amen, amen. You can put your hands down. God, these people were so brave. acknowledge that they want their stories rewritten. So help them. Help them to say yes to you. For those of us who for whatever reason weren't able to raise our hand, I pray that if there is difference that you see that you would show us. Not to shame us, but to bless us. Help this story, help these three lines of poetry to mess with us, to change us and shape us as individuals and as a church. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Do you know... If you say yes to letting God rewrite the story and make Him your Lord, that's what we mean by getting saved. Do you know that? So if you said yes today, I want that to be rewritten in me. I want you to know you're on the path. I pray you would come and talk with me and say, what do I do to know that I've been saved, that I'm a a part of the called out ones. You can come and talk to me. I will receive that with joy and celebration. But I'd love for you to stand right now. 
And I'd love to bless you as you go. And now, may your stories be rewritten. May it shape your identity and your values. Yes, may it cause godliness, the behaviors of Jesus, to flow out of you into your everyday world. I pray that you would come to deeply know the one who was made manifest in flesh and spirit and shown righteous. May He make you righteous in your flesh and spirit. I pray that you would know the one who was seen by angels. And I pray you will join the ones who herald Him to the nations. I pray and ask God to bless you that you might know Him in all of the cosmos and be taken with Him up in glory. I pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Go in His name.